Are your wiper blades chattering, skipping, or squeaking? Don't let streaks or smearing on your windshield compromise your visibility. When it's time to replace your wiper blades, stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts and see our selection. Our professional parts people will even install your new wiper blades while you wait. Stop by O'Reilly Auto Parts today. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit seafoamworks.com to learn more. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 263. And today's the final part of our two-part 2018 review. And today, that means Spencer and I are reviewing trends and observations about the 2018 deer hunting season from across the country. All right, welcome to another episode of the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Onyx. And today we are kind of belatedly, um, but but better late than never, we're kind of wrapping up our Rut Radio mini-series that we had going throughout the 2018 hunting season. Um, up until like mid-December every week, as you probably remember, we chatted with hunters across the country to find out what was happening out in the woods how were deer reacting to hunting pressure to different weather conditions to changing food sources to all sorts of things like that and then you know discussing different ways to take advantage of that so spencer is with me and the two of us our kind of thought for today's episode was to kind of look back at the year from a rut radio perspective and look at this kind of like thirty thousand foot overview of what were some of the trends that we saw? Spencer, from all the people that he talked to, what were some of the things that, that he heard consistently at different times of year? And and are there anything we, we can learn from that when we try to look back on like the big patterns of 2018 that maybe we could apply to future years? Um, so so that that's kind of the game plan, Spencer. I know that uh, we've done this in the past. Do, do, do you feel good about that game plan for today? Is there anything you want to do differently, or, or do you just want to hop right into what you thought were some of the major trends this year? Yeah, so let's give a little bit more context. This is the third season now of Road Radio with about a dozen episodes this year spanning from September to December. Um, last year, we did a recap in January as well. And do you remember what were a few of the, the main things that we hit? on that we thought were kind of the the themes for the 2017 road do you recall what we talked about then mark okay i feel like i'm back in high school and i'm being quizzed <laughs> and I, I didn't do my homework i should have prepared for this but if i can if i can go off of the top of my head uh-huh. i think the things that i remember standing out from 2017 um i remember we had some really well-timed cold fronts right yeah yeah i think that was that was the big one for 2017. Uh, you know, I think 
we had talked about how if you pulled out a calendar at the beginning of fall and you circled the dates that you wanted cold fronts, that's what we got last year. You know, they were hitting on like Fridays and Saturdays when guys were off work and going to be in the woods. They were coming at the end of October uh, to the beginning of November. They were just like the perfectly timed cold fronts. If you like hunting cold fronts, 2017 was the year. So that was like the one big takeaway, I think, from that year. Um, there were a few other things that we touched on. And the other one that I think was important was everybody we talked to, whether it was like Arkansas, Illinois, Kentucky, uh, you know, New York, everyone was talking about the massive acorn crop. Uh, now, that's something that can be like super localized, maybe not always a national theme such as weather patterns can be. But I think in 2017 overall, uh, everybody was talking about how the acorns were affecting deer movement. Yeah. Now I want to, I want to continue establishing context here and, and think back a little bit on a prediction that you, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't you make a prediction last year that we're in for like an especially good year as far as big healthy deer? Was that last year that you thought that was going to be the case based off of kind of coming out of EHD four years prior and a bunch of things like that? So I think I wrote that piece for Wired Hunt back in like 2016. Um, if I remember correctly, I titled it like, we're in the glory days of whitetail hunting. And I, I was talking um, kind of specifically about like my part of the country in South Dakota because we just got hammered with EHD. Like there were some counties that – had estimates as high as 80% loss. Um, and so coming out of that, I talked about how then in 2016, like four years removed from that, that in um, the next few years, I was thinking would be really good for hunters and deer because agencies were getting out ahead of it. So they were cutting back on tag numbers. Uh, populations were rebounding pretty quickly in most areas. Um, we were getting like mature bucks that, had not experienced very much pressure. And so I thought all those things were kind of brewing for like some good years to come, you know, with the timing of EHD hitting. Yeah. And I, I, I was thinking the same thing too, because what you, what you had in these areas and it wasn't just in South Dakota. I mean, it was, it was pretty widespread across a lot of the Midwest right. um, back in 2012 and 2013. So in, in a bunch of those localized areas, you had deer populations, you know, pretty dramatically in some spots being reduced. And, and I thought the same thing. I thought, okay, any deer that survived or the deer that were born that following year, they're all of a sudden entering a world where competition for resources is much less than it used to be. So there's the same level of nutrition, but much lower social stress, much less competition for food, much less competition for the best bedding. All these things led to those bucks that were starting their lives around that time period. All of a sudden we're like... I don't know if you and me like got dropped off at like Windsor palace with all the food and, and resources and servants we could possibly want. Like we become really fat and happy over the next four years. And so if you took, you know, that let's say the 2013 EHD was the last really bad one across a lot of the country. So if there was a deer that was born that next year or even that spring, right, go four or five years out. Now we're to this year. Um, so my question then being, have you seen, or do you think, now I know this is good, this is not um, quantitative in any way at all. This is simply just based off, you know, stories we hear, pictures we see, trying to, like, 
trying to guess on a trend just based off the vibe we're picking up. But you and me, we see and talk to a lot of people in the hunting world. Um, I kind of feel like that prediction kind of proved true over the last couple of years. Um, there's been, I wish I could have quantified this. I wish we'd looked into it. Um, but there have been a number of particularly large deer killed. There's been a number of people, if we're just looking at like very visible folks, so quote unquote famous deer hunters. And a lot of these people who, who consistently killed big mature bucks, but the last year or two, they're killing their various biggest deer ever. Take for example, Mark Drury last year and the year before killed his first 200 inch plus deer this year, or no, sorry, last year, Lee Likoski killed his first two 200 inch deer. And then this year killed his largest typical buck ever. Now, again, you know, I'm not trying to say this is what it's all about and that's what matters. It's just kind of an interesting thing to see. And I'm just curious if, if the EHD rebound had anything to do with some of these deer reaching a genetic potential that maybe in past years they wouldn't. Um, I don't know. Does any of that ring true to you, Spencer? Yeah, I, I think so. And I think maybe like one of the biggest things that came with this people thinking about the health of herds. Um, when that hit in 2012, I would have been like 19 years old or something. I, I feel like I hadn't even heard of EHD up until that point. And then all of a sudden it was something that everybody was aware of. Um, you know, the, it was even coming up in some of my like college biology classes that I don't think those professors had either, ever talked about it prior to that either. So even if it, um, you know, physically did not make a difference in 2012 going forward, uh, which I, I would say that you and I agree it did, at least it got people thinking about, about these things, uh, maybe inspired somebody to join QDMA or inspired somebody to, uh, you know, go to college to be a wildlife biologist or put a put an extra watering hole in on their property, something like that. So, you know, 2012 was devastating, but there was a lot of silver linings that came out of that. And, yeah. uh, you know, as we were just talking about this, I pulled up that article that I wrote that was on June 2nd, 2016. And some of the things I talked about were like, um, you know, agencies took notice of deer herds being eliminated and, and, you know, deer numbers being short. Nebraska, uh, took away 87,000 tags, uh, Missouri cut back and unlimited doe tags, Iowa eliminated 41,000 permits, South Dakota removed 48% of its rifle tags, Ohio reduced antlerless tags in 44 different counties. Um, so that was one of the big things that, uh, you, you know, I think we get less pressure in the woods and then, yeah, like you talked about, less competition for resources. Yeah. And, and to your point, it definitely did spark some kind of attention within the deer hunting community because for a long time right deer populations seemed to be super healthy no big issues everyone was going along hunky-dory and then there was this kind of sort of hard reset it was a combination of things i mean there was the big ehg that hit um, over those couple of years there were also a lot of changes in habitat i remember coming out of that uh, that time period talking with kip adams from the quality deer management association I can't remember the numbers, but he spoke to the fact that over that several year time period, the amount of land that had formerly been in CRP or some kind of cover that had been now changed into full-blown just agricultural crops, um, was a, there was a dramatic reduction in CRP acreage, if I remember right. So a bunch of different things were changing, resulting in kind of a tougher time for some of these populations. So yeah, a lot of populations dropped. I remember seeing, you know, we were talking about harvest numbers going down for a lot of states. It was just a whole lot of attention during those couple of years, 2014, 15, 
I think that was around that time period. And that's when stuff like the National Deer Alliance started. Um, the QDMA started, I think, readjusting some of their goals. So it's an interesting point you made that um, that at the time there was a lot of worry about, oh, is this like the beginning of a, a sharp negative trend within the deer hunting world? And I think we can look at things now in 2018 and say, hey, like there was a hiccup there, but it seems like either the hunting population or the management agencies or all of us together kind of course corrected appropriately because at least anecdotally things sound like uh, things sound like most things are positive outside of, you know, some disease issues like CWD concerns and, and stuff like that. So I don't know, man, this is a, we're, we're going really high level now talking about <laughs> several year trends. Um, right. But it is interesting to, to kind of, look at that and then zoom into this past year. So if that's the larger trend over the last couple of years, um, I would say that I feel like 2018 continued that trend. Like I think overall, um, would you agree that most people looked at 2018 positively? It wasn't like a few years back where people were like, oh, this is one of the worst years we've had in a long time, blah, blah, blah. No, I feel like most folks said, hey, this felt like a good year. Um, there was, you know, good, decent conditions. I mean, I felt like there was a lot of success being had across the country, right? I mean, super high level. Would you agree with that too? Yeah. So let's get started discussing some of that stuff. And I have, you know, like six points from 2018 that I think were the themes of this last fall. The first one of those is that early. Can I put a pause on you? Yes. Sorry, Spencer. (laughs) Um, I am curious. So, well, I'm I'm looking at these these things and we've talked about these a little bit. Um, I'm curious what like if we were to put these in order, are you going to run through these in the order of significance? You think, or are you going to go through these as far as um, maybe the time chronologically? Of year? Chronologically, okay. So then, um, as we go along, I'm curious to see if you and me. The point I'm getting to is I'm curious if you and me feel the same about the significance of some of these. So um, as we go along, I'll figure out some way to do that. <laughs> Okay. Maybe I'll like crow like a bird over here or something when I get to my number one. And you'll, <laughs> and you'll know that's my, my top choice. Let's start off here chronologically. And I think one of the biggest factors uh, that from uh, from the rut and uh, you know chronologically was that early October cold front that we had. Um, it was something that we talked about on rut radio. I think all four colors we had that week touched on it. Like you got to get in the woods. Uh, we were coming out of a long stretch. I think of like some stagnant weather, maybe even above average temperatures. And then, uh, it was around like October 13th, 14th, 15th. Do you remember the specific dates, Mark? When yeah, that happened? I know. I think it was, it was like the 11th or I feel like the 12th at least here in Michigan on the 12th, we were getting the rain from that front. And then it continued. Like, I think 11th, the evening of the 11th through like the 15th seemed to be that sweet spot for me here in Southern Michigan. So somewhere on that, give or take based on where you're in the country. Right. And it, it seemed like the entire country felt it too. Like from North Dakota, you know, over to the Carolinas, uh, everyone got a bit of that cold front that came through in early October. Uh, and we had talked to on the podcast that, yeah, you know, get in the woods, bucks are going to be moving or whatever. And then after that cold front passed, it seemed like social media lit up with big bucks hitting the ground. Yeah. 
I 100% agree. That was definitely something that stood out. Um, and and in retrospect, like that was happening. People were talking about it. Everyone was excited. And I remember going out for for one hunt myself, maybe two, um, but I didn't hit it super hard. And then I went out and checked cameras on the 18th or 19th or something on uh, one of the properties, I guess, that I hunt. And I was kicking myself because I checked these cameras. And on the 13th, 14th, 15th, it was like full-blown rut type of pictures. I mean, every buck that I knew of in the area in daylight, day after day, like all over the place. It was it was shocking how impactful that cold front was during that time period. And it was, for me, it was one of those things where I didn't practice what I preached a little bit or I was like maybe a little bit too conservative. Like I knew the cold front was going to be happening. I knew it was going to be good, but I didn't take advantage of it probably as much as I should have. I should have hit it really hard um, in retrospect because, like you said, there were bucks hitting the ground all over the place. Um, didn't Wasn't it during that time period that you saw – lieutenant dan once wasn't it mid-october right around there yeah it was uh right around that i think it was towards the end of that cold front um that was one of the few sightings that i had of him uh in the fall and so it, that along with some other good deer movement that i saw plus good trail cam intel from that cold front uh and then our callers who you know talked about hey it's going to be great deer movement and then a lot of them capitalized on it i don't remember who was on that episode specifically but i think like two or three out of the four people we talked to went out and killed big bucks and then like i said just the rest of you know social media echoing that and and seeing a lot of big bucks hitting the ground and for me personally this kind of gave credence to like hunting around cold fronts i've always considered myself kind of like a cold front truther or uh yeah I hate someone yeah, yeah. And so like I, I like to I remind myself and remind other people that um, you know, there have not been any studies that show a correlation between like cold fronts and buck movement. And there's been a lot of them done and uh, you know, a number of biologists have had tried tracking this, but nobody has seen like positive influence on deer movement when we experience a cold front. Now that goes against like almost all common hunting knowledge and uh, you know, what you'll hear like big buck experts talk about. And so I, I've always leaned more towards the science, but man, seeing that happened, uh, that was kind of vindicating for those guys who say cold fronts help you kill deer. Now on the same, like if we're going to bring that up, we also need to acknowledge that when those cold fronts come through, uh, a lot of people are sitting in their better stands, like they're hunting an area they normally wouldn't be. They're hunting an area uh, that they had maybe been holding off for until we got a good cold front. They're more focused, like they are doing more to control their scent. You know, if you're if you're more serious about it, you think there's going to be a deer walking by. You're more focused into your entrance and exit. So I think just in general. There's something to cold fronts making people a better hunter because they're more confident and maybe they're hunting areas that they've been, you know, saving for that specific day. So I think there's also still a lot of that involved that a hunter sees a cold front coming and uh, their hunting style changes. Yeah, I get your, I get it. I get your theory. This It's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you have that belief in the cold front, if you have that confidence in it, you do things differently, and, and there's probably some truth to that. Um, but I just, I just don't think you can deny the 
what we just see year after year after year. And I will say even Matt Ross and, and Lindsey Thomas Jr., both from the Quality Deer Management Association, both guys commonly cite those studies that you referenced there. Even though they are very familiar with those studies, they both on this podcast have said, but we know that deer move more than in cold cold fronts. We've all seen it. Um, mm-hmm. So it just makes me always wonder, like, how – I always, and I've said this many times, I've never figured out the right way to articulate it, but the, how researchers are measuring this delta in deer movement based off cold fronts or, or weather or something like that, I feel like what they're measuring as statistically significant or not is got to be different than what we as hunters do. So maybe there's, there's less than 3% increase in total deer movement throughout the day. Um, this is hypothetical numbers, but maybe the researchers saw there's less than 3% increase or decrease in deer movement based off weather. So it's not statistically significant, meaning weather doesn't impact deer movement. But if that 3% bump in deer movement is actually 6% increase during daylight hours, and if that 6% increase happens to typically be within the last half hour of daylight and during that time period, it's actually a 15% increase in movement because you're looking at this narrow, like I feel like these different things, when you narrow the scope of what you're specifically looking for, all of a sudden it might actually lead to something different. So I wish, and maybe, maybe this has been done. I can't remember every single study, but it'd be really interesting to see if, if folks could measure this from like a hunter's perspective, like what really matters, like what's the total distance moved from a bedding location to a food location. Does that increase um, the few days after a weather system, or does the amount of time on foot change the two or three days after a cold front? Like those kinds of things would be very hunter centric in focus. Um, that would be really interesting to me. Um, I don't know if that's yeah, been and, done or not. And I'm, I'm admittedly a hypocrite on this. Like if I see a cold front coming up, I get excited about it. I'm doing the same thing as everyone else. I'm hunting a better stand, uh, you know, I am changing my hunting habits uh, like everyone else does who gets excited about a cold front. So I say all that and I, I cite the science, but I still feel the same way that there is likely, uh, you know, better buck movement and your odds are better of killing a mature animal when we get those cold fronts. And, you know, what are your thoughts on this, Mark, that maybe like the, the early October cold front, like around that 10th 11th 12th 13th 14th whatever it was that that like makes a bigger difference for buck movement than if we got it at the end of october after seeing what happened here in 2018 do you think that those cold fronts are like better or more preferred than maybe if you got one any other time of the year like how would you now rank the the significance of a cold front in early october versus other times of year yeah so I think that your increased value is higher when you get a cold front that's, you know, in the early to mid part of October or late in the season versus closer to the rut. Because closer to the rut, you're already going to get that increase in deer activity because of rising hormones, testosterone level, everything around the rut ramping up as you get into late October into November. That stuff's happening regardless of weather. Weather definitely can accentuate it. It can definitely amplify it or it can dampen it, but you know, it's not quite as make or break. While if you get 
this kind of cold front on October 11th when typically a lot of things are causing deer movement to maybe not be quite as visible because of hunting pressure, because of, you know, changing food. So all the, all the things that people, um, kind of see as an October lull, um, when you have this mega cold front hit right at that time, we saw all of a sudden what would typically be a slower time of year for most people, or maybe even the slowest time of year for a lot of people, all of a sudden became like one of the top couple day periods of the entire season. I think if we were to, if we were to rank by a couple day periods throughout the year, that's gotta be one of the best chunks of time this entire season. Um, so yeah, I think it had a really high impact. And for me, just like you said, this is another great reminder that when you have those fronts hitting and the big thing for me was that they might be so important when they hit at times like this, that you change your strategy completely, um, at times. So for me, like I, I would, I uber conservative in the middle of October, usually, um, that probably would have been a time to strike. And a friend like uh, like my buddy Andy, Andy May, had this kind of thing. October 12th, cold front hit. It's raining. He struck. He went into one of his best properties and killed an awesome mature buck. Um, I didn't do that, and I didn't kill a mature buck. So that was another aha moment for me, I think. It was a good reminder that um, those are days that, you know, it's worth taking a swing at. And I think, uh, like, talking about, the October law transitions nicely into our next subject, which is the acorn crop of 2018. Now, this is maybe more of a theme in 2018 because of what it was in 2017. Like I said before, I think that was like one of the biggest factors of the 2017 rut. Uh, and one of the things that came up all the time on rut radio was the massive acorn crop. Now in 2018, it seemed like from people we talked to that it was like an average to below average acorn crop. And so maybe not like super significant when it came to deer movement but if you were somebody who came out of the fall of 2017 and had these ideas about how bucks were moving in mid-october and what uh you know your property sets up like for mid-october and we're basing that off of like a massive massive acorn crop then maybe 2018 was very different for you and uh you, you know created a bigger learning curve because that huge acorn crop wasn't there. And it, it seemed like it was an average year for acorns in much of the country. Yeah. I felt, I felt similarly both, you know, from my own personal experiences and here from other folks that this year now it's, it can be pretty localized. Like there's some people you talk to like, Oh man, acorns, that's where it's at. Cause there's going to be some of those little spots where there's mega crops. I actually, um, on one of the properties I hunt did have, a ton of acorns this year. Um, and that maybe could have been part of the reason why I didn't see as much activity on some of the usual food sources. So I think that, I think maybe my takeaway from that this year is just a, a reminder to me and all of us of, of how important that crop is, whether it's there or not. And what I probably need to do a better job of each year is trying to figure that out. You know, do your, do your late summer scouting, um, of food sources and really figure out, okay, what is the mass crop like this year? And how does that change things? Uh, it's easy. I'm guilty of lots of times just focusing on the egg and thinking, okay, I got corn in this field. I've got beans in this one, uh, alfalfa in this one and, and think about too much how that impacts the deer and to the exclusion 
of of hard mast and and, and even soft mast. Now soft mast is, is obviously something that's usually not as widespread, but locally on certain properties, apple trees or persimmons or whatever, um, those things could all really change deer behavior. So I think it's probably just another reminder that that's something you don't want to overlook. Um, you probably don't have a ton of mast in South Dakota by you, do you? Uh, not very much. Like I've said before, um, South Dakota ranks like third in terms of least amount of trees per square mile. So uh, we just don't have a lot of hardwoods the way it is. And specifically where I hunt, there are like where I hunt, there's probably not an acorn for five miles. So it's nothing that has ever uh, been on my radar much. But when it comes to rut radio, that is often like something unprompted that comes up and is a number one factor for guys like in mid-October. Yeah. Now, did you have any um, any trends that you kind of, you had your finger on the pulse a little bit more than me, but as far as ag crops, um, either that being the quality of food available this year or the timing of when things came out this year. Was there anything like that that you think impacted the deer season? I've got a, a few things that maybe did, but I'm curious from your perspective, was there any other big far-reaching food-related trends outside of the acorn crop? So if you want to talk about like big egg, then that would go to our next point as far as how I feel that affected things was the really wet fall that we had. Um, for some areas like September and October were record-breaking months for the amount of precipitation that certain states or certain counties got. Um, and that was another thing that came up on tons of episodes of Rut Radio was how rain was affecting deer movement, affecting deer patterns, things like that. And then the long-term effect of that, one of those things was creating a late harvest because when you constantly have rain, uh, you know, throughout mid-October, that was keeping the fields really wet and keeping farmers out of the fields. And so maybe compared to the last few years, this year was a really late harvest um, for, for most areas i think and so that is something that would affect deer movement when it comes to food sources and i think the primary factor for that was the amount of rain that we had Yep, definitely definitely felt that heard that saw that i know there are a lot of people around me here in southern michigan that were actually still taking out corn here in like december so that that's pretty indicative of that that wet fall theory and uh again i think most people are aware of this but for new hunters especially it's something to think about when you have a lot of ag around where you hunt keeping in mind when those crops are coming out and thinking about how that's going to impact deer uh, not just when the crops are coming out but also when the crops mature and change right being aware of how deer feeding habits change as crops change at a super high level you know where i hunt most of the time it's it's beans and corn most of the area so you're seeing you know, deer really being in the soybeans in the summer when they're green. And then as those soybeans start to yellow, now I know Spencer, you did a little looking into this and maybe you can offer different thoughts, but usually the, the attractiveness of those yellowing and drying soybean leaves that goes down. And then you see green, um, summer corn not being all that attractive but as it dries into the fall then deer start craving the the carbohydrates that corn has and as it gets colder they start getting pulled to those grains more and more and more so once you get to that cold weather time period then all of a sudden corn and the the actual beans from soybeans become very attractive so that's another one of those things that just to keep in mind 
as a as a new hunter, you want to understand how deer are transitioning from food source to food source as the year progresses, because that can really change where you want to hunt. Um, I, I'm sure you you've seen all those same things, right? Yeah, and I I look back to the episode that we had in August when it was me, you, Furter, and Dan. Uh, and Dan and I had talked about how, like, he hunts in Iowa, I hunt in South Dakota, that the deck gets reshuffled when harvest happens um, just because, like, you'll have bucks that are literally bedding in those fields. If they find a, a low spot in a, you know, a cornfield, they'll bed there or, uh, you know, that kind of thing. So it can change, like, where they're bedding and it'll change where they're feeding. And so that is always, uh, you know, a big change for archery hunters when that harvest happens and this year with how wet things were you probably felt that reshuffling of the deck a little bit later than normal yeah and the one possible benefit of it i've always thought i've always been kind of a fan of years when the corn stays in extra long and that this is selfish um but when the corn stays in at least around where i hunt here in michigan that becomes a sanctuary for deer and if the corn is standing after or on November 15th, on opening day of gun season, I believe there's a dramatically lower number of young bucks getting killed because a lot of these, and bucks in general probably, um, they know to stay in there, they stay safe. They're not, they're not being seen by hunters. So there's a lot of deer that probably wouldn't have made it through those first couple days um, that do when you've got standing corn in the air. So I'm not saying it'd be a good thing all the time because, of course, you know, these deer populations have to be hunted and taken. But uh, selfishly, in a small term or small time kind of deal, I kind of like it when there's a standing cornfield if I'm hoping that a buck or two might make it through. Um, but, of course, then if you're actually trying to kill that deer, it can make it tough for you, too. So something to think about. Let's pause now for a quick second to thank our partners at Whitetail Properties. And Spencer will take it from here with a quick chat with a Whitetail Properties land specialist. This week with Whitetail Properties, we are joined by Tom James, a land specialist out of central Indiana. And Tom is going to be telling us about what the very first habitat improvements should be for a land manager. Good question. Um, Some of the first key things, the fundamentals that you want to think about is when you think in terms of what a deer requires, the the food security cover and water. And uh, the QDMA has a great analogy of the thinking about the lowest hole on the bucket that you need to plug up to keep the water from leaking out. So what could be missing on your property that the surrounding land may have? And so you want to do a quick assessment. Maybe it's food, maybe it's water, maybe if you can uh, maybe it's cover. If you can look through your woods and see 200 yards, then you've got an issue with, with uh, too much shade, not enough sunlight, creating new uh, potential browse and, and cover for your deer. So maybe it's a timber, uh, a timber, either stand improvement or a harvest or a combination of two. That's going to allow some more new growth to come in and thicken up your property. Maybe it's as simple as you not leaving an area alone as a sanctuary. If you're traipsing all over 40 acres and pushing deer off every time you go, then that's, that's obviously an issue. So maybe just an adjustment in the way that you move around and hunt the property and approach things. Uh, if food is your lacking ingredient or your lowest hole in the bucket, then even in timber, it takes some work, but you can certainly clear out some openings and, and plant food. Um, and I would suggest considering both uh, perennial food and annual food, stuff that you can leave in like clover and chicory, 
as a perennial coming back every year and do some fall planted cereal grains and brassicas for the fall time. So you've got a year round program going on. And typically it's not an issue in the Midwest, but if, if water is a lacking ingredient, then maybe you can create a water hole or, or even some of the new systems like the bank's water uh, watering uh, tanks that you can set up that are mobile and fill up and provide water sources for your deer so that they don't have to leave the property to water. Um, again, it's fairly rare, but that could be a consideration. If you'd like to learn more and to see the properties that Tom currently has listed for sale, visit whitetailproperties.com backslash James. That's J-A-M-E-S. So let's touch more on like the amount of precipitation that we had in October and September. Um, this is a question I think you get all the time, Mark, is how does rain affect deer movement? And what I mean by that is like instantaneously. Say you go out for an evening sit and it is pouring rain or sprinkling or whatever. Um, how does that affect a buck's movement? Because that's something that people were probably experiencing and wondering a lot in 2018. Yeah, good question. Um, and I do get this question a ton. Every time it gets to be October or November and you got a big rainstorm moving across the country, you'll start to see these tweets show up or Facebook messages. So it is something to address. And my perspective might be a little bit different than some folks. Um, I know like talking to Dan and other folks in Iowa and some of these other states that have a little bit lower hunting pressure, um, they've kind of pointed to these real rainy, dreary days and say, meh, not that good. Um, I have seen in Michigan that when you've got a rainy day, it is one of the very best days of the season. So I try to prioritize rainy, nasty days just like a cold front hitting and oftentimes they come together right you get a cold front pushing through and the rain comes through um so that might be just the fact that it's it's coinciding with other factors that increase deer movement but whatever it is um i have found rainy days to be great days to see that mature buck that usually doesn't move in daylight that rainy dreary cooler day might be the one day he does it uh, i've seen it time and time again with a lot of the bucks i've hunted over the last mm, six to ten years probably i can point to numerous examples especially in michigan and um and i brought this up in the past and i don't know if there's any credence to this at all this is purely um purely uh spitballing here but john eberhardt had always talked about the fact that he thought that it might be hunting pressure related and that these mature bucks felt safer on those rainy crappy days because typically humans aren't encountered on those days humans just don't go out in the woods as often on those days whether it be hunters or anyone um so his theory as i remember it was that that might be part of the reason why these deer feel more comfortable um i don't know if there's anything to it but it certainly seemed to to be the case for me um so that said i do think that drizzly days steady rain days um i'm gonna be out in the tree stand if i can be if it's absolutely torrential downpour like monsoon, then yeah, I'm seeing those deer hunker down bed and not moving. But oftentimes, I will still go out and hunt because if there's a break in that weather or if there's like an expected break an hour before daylight or hour before dark or something like that, just after the monsoon passes or whenever that little break in the weather happens, that can be a huge trigger and you get a bunch of deer moving then right afterwards. And if you are, you know, if you took the whole day off, the whole evening hunt off because it was going to rain most of the day, you miss out on that 20-minute window that all of a sudden there's these deer moving all over the place. 
So I like to try to take advantage of as much as possible, even though it's not always fun if you're getting rained on the whole set. Um, it's usually worthwhile. I would just caution my one thing with rainy day sits is that you do have to think about the implications on tracking, right? If you shoot a deer, you possibly could lose blood on a rainy day. So I significantly reduce my range, you know, on a rainy day, I wouldn't shoot anything like outside 20 yards. Like it has to be like a guaranteed pinwheel, perfect double long shot. And then, you know, if that deer runs off and you don't feel confident with where you last saw him, um, that's the kind of situation where if it's legal in your state, you know, plan on knowing where a tracking dog is. Know someone that has a tracking dog because tracking dogs can still easily track in rain. So you can find these deer. Obviously, that's a must. You have to recover that deer. If you don't think you can recover that deer, then you, then you shouldn't be hunting out there. But tracking dogs can can definitely help you do that. And in the case, again, referencing Andy, um, killed that nice buck October 12th. It started raining just as, like, I can't remember if it started raining just before he shot the deer or just afterwards. Um, but he was worried about losing the blood trail. We got another friend out there with a dog and walked right to the buck. Um, so, so those are my long and rambling thoughts on rainy day deer. Do you disagree or agree with any of that, Spencer? I, I really don't have strong feelings uh, one way or the other when it comes to rain affecting deer movement. And I think that's probably the case for a lot of guys. Uh, you know, whereas you talk about like cold fronts that in, can inspire some really heated debates. So you talk about acorns, people are really passionate about how that can change deer movement. But I would say for most hunters uh, that there's probably just not enough evidence of like, how rain has affected some of their hunts. And so I, I don't put too much stop one way or the other into if rain is going to positively or negatively affect deer movement. Uh, I, I'm, it's probably not going to change like what my strategy is for a specific hunt or what stand I'm going to sit in or anything like that. So let's talk about something else that does cause debate within the hunting community about whether or not it impacts deer movement. And that is the moon. And, um, this year I feel like there was a lot of talk around moon moon phase, moon times, red moon, blue moon, green moon, um, running moon. We both noticed this this year, right? There's there's some interesting things around that this year. Uh, yeah, I, I think that what you're going to bring up here is probably your number one factor for the 2018 rut, but yeah, carry on. <laughs> yeah, I didn't I didn't crow like a bird, but yes, this was probably <laughs> this is probably the number one factor as far as a standout time period during the year something that seemed to have a disproportionate impact on results um and it's a little bit surprising to me because i have always looked at moon related things similarly to you spencer in that the science the studies have always shown there's not an impact on deer moment based off all these different studies i've looked into at least nothing substantial i i have seen a handful that maybe say okay there's a little bit of this a little bit of that but nothing um, that really would be worth hunters keying in on. But you get all these hunters that claim that it does make a, make a difference. So you've got the theories around the moon and the rut. Some people believe that this rutting moon that happens, it's the, oh gosh, is it, it's the first full moon after the autumn equinox. Is that right? Or the second full moon after the autumn equinox? I'm yeah. 
It sounds right. I'm blanking on the on the first or second. Forgive me for that. Um, but usually this moon falls somewhere between late October and late November. And the theory is that based on when that moon hits, it will influence the kind of kickoff point of the rut. And studies show that's just simply not true, at least as far as the timing of actual breeding. Study after study after study, when you look and see, you, you measure fetuses, you can backdate when these deer were bred. You can see that every year it's a pretty darn consistent peak of breeding across most of the country. In most places across the country, it's somewhere in mid-November is your peak breeding date. Meaning, or excuse me, meaning that across most of the country, the couple weeks leading up to that will be when you see a lot of the, the chasing, the seeking, the daylight activity that we all want to see as deer hunters. So that's always made me think, well, I'm not going to care about when the rutting moon is too much. Um, or another one, you hear folks like Adam Hayes, even even Dan Infault, uh, Andre DeQuisto, different folks talk about this red moon, which is when the moon is directly overhead or directly underfoot. Um, those happen a few times a year. We've got these red moon dates. I have a couple buddies who are really big on the red moon. Um, and again, I kind of, I've always been intrigued. I watch it. I, I kind of pay attention to it. But I've never really, you know, been too focused on keying in on it. Another moon-related theory um, is if the moon is rising or setting during the last part of the day or the beginning of the day. So all these different moon theories out there, the one that's relevant to what we're talking about here, and I probably should have just focused on that, was the rutting moon one that I mentioned there. And this, this rutting moon this year was an early one. It occurred October 24th fourth or fifth or sixth or seventh somewhere around there was when the rutting moon hit so the theory being if the theory held true um supposedly you're supposed to see a, a pickup in rutting activity much earlier this year so supposedly late october we're going to see this big burst of daylight activity from bucks starting to get after does there are going to be some does coming into estrus usually earlier than usual and it was going to lead to this this earlier than usual rut I didn't really give it much credit leading to the season. And then I head out to Nebraska on October 24th, and I'm hunting on the 25th, and I see a big mature buck cruising during daylight at 3 in the afternoon. And then I see another big mature buck cruising at 4.30 or 5 in the afternoon. This is like three, four hours before dark. Um, and then I get home that night after shooting that buck, not home, I get back to the tent that night and I pull up my phone and I see that this guy killed a big mature buck and this guy killed a big mature buck. And then the next day, the same thing. And over the next three to four days, three to five days, maybe somewhere between that, maybe October 24th to the 29th or 30th, somewhere in that ballpark. It was like, it was, it was as if we were watching your Instagram feed on November 8th. You know, it's just like guy and girl and guy and girl and guy and girl. Everyone was just killing deer and, and big mature deer during that time period. Way, way earlier than you usually see that kind of quantity. Um, that was like the, the, the vibe I was picking up. And and you kind of saw the same thing too, right? Yeah, I had probably like my best string of sits this year was from I think like November, or excuse me, October 25th through the 29th. Um, I had... Like, I think I had an encounter on every single hunt with a mature buck. Um, my trail cameras, like a few weeks later when I was able to gather some of that data, that was like a super hot time for them as far as mature bucks being on their feet in daylight. That was even like one of the few times that I had Dan on camera was October 28th, I believe. Um, like 
one of the few times I had him on daylight on camera, like throughout the fall, even during the rut. And so just from my personal encounters and my trail cameras and talking about a few specific deer. And then, like you said, the like social media, big bucks that you saw hitting the ground, uh, it, it seemed like that gave some credence to the early rutting moon. So now here's the question. It, everything we're picking up on, again, we're, we haven't been able to quantify this in any way. I wish there was some way that you could. We need to build an app or an, we need to build an algorithm that can measure deer-related hashtags, something like <laughs> a, like like BBD or something like that, and uh-huh. measure the quantity of BBD hashtags on Instagram and Facebook and then map that out over the course of the season so you can see how that hashtag rises. I bet you that actually would correlate to, to, to harvest, you know, I think that'd be a really interesting thing. If there's anyone out there who knows how to do that, <laughs> do it and send it to me. Cause I'm really interested to see what that might look like. And then compare that to several years and look and see like how deer related hashtags, like whatever these, whatever hashtags you think get applied to a, a, a picture of a, of a dead deer, like your, your picture, how that trends throughout the year. I got to believe it would correlate to something like this. Or at least I'm curious to see what it would. And uh, I don't know. It just it felt that way, at least, that this year there was that that earlier-than-usual uptick in it. And so, so then what I'm, what I'm trying to get at here is does that change your view at all on the impact of the moon on – I'm not – well, does it, does it change your view at all, Spencer? I'll give you my thoughts in a second. But does it intrigue you or change your thoughts in any way? So my thoughts – before this season uh have always been that i look at like moon theories like i look at sasquatch or aliens <laughs> like i, I so don't you believe, believe wholeheartedly <laughs> and so i don't believe in it but i am intrigued as hell when it comes to those things like if you have a, an alien story that you saw on ufo uh I, I got to hear about it. Or if I'm flipping through the channels and I come across a Bigfoot documentary, I'm glued to the TV. So like, <laughs> I love hearing about it and I'm super interested in the subject, but what it boils down to is I still don't believe in it. Now, after this year, my thoughts on it largely remain the same. Uh, I think that there maybe was an uptick in deer killed, but I guess some of the things we're maybe not considering, uh, are, are, a whole bunch of other factors like barometric pressure and if there was any some something certain with the weather or crop status um so i, I guess uh another part of it too is why i think that like i'm not so much buying into the rutting moon as i am that early october cold front is because there are supposed to be a lot of big deer killed at the end of october we would have seen that Either way, uh, had that rutting moon not been there, that's a time of year when a lot of guys are killing target bucks because they're making those uh, more reckless walkabouts, but they're still patternable. So that's a time of year we're supposed to see big deer being killed. Whereas, you know, when regards to that early October cold front, we're not supposed to see giants that are hitting the ground on like October, you know, 12th or 13th or whatever. That's the October law. Now, I'm not saying like, that's that's always the case and uh like that's that ha- that's how it has, has to be but that's why like i think the cold front was more important this year because 
that maybe inspired people to kill more big deer than the rutting mood would during a time of year when big deer would be killed anyway. Yeah, it was like the volume on October 10th is usually like a one. And this year with that cold front, it got bumped up to like a six or a seven or mm-hmm. something like that. So that was a pretty substantial difference. Now, in late October, with this cold, or not the cold front, but with this moon thing, we're usually going to have a, a rating of a 7 maybe anyways. Every year, it's somewhere around that. But all of a sudden, now it was like at 10. So it was it was higher in this late October time period, but it was only a difference from the usual of, of maybe 3, while maybe the, the volume was a little bit lower early October, but the difference from the usual was more substantial, I think is, is kind of what you're saying, and it's kind of what I felt too. Um, yeah. But it's, uh, I don't know, it was, it was interesting. And I would say that my thoughts on the moon are largely similar to yours in that I don't put too much into it. Um, I'm still hunt. I, I, it really doesn't impact how I hunt. Um, I'm not, I'm not really like choosing to go into a great spot or not because of the moon being one way or another. But it is something that I kind of just watch and I'm intrigued with it. And if I happen, like if I'm going in to hunt a good spot because of a weather related thing, I, I, cold fronts definitely do impact my hunting. So let's say I'm heading in because of that. And then I see that the barometric pressure is high. And then I also see that the moon is right for one of these theories. It does give me maybe a tiny bit more hope. Um, I'm like, Hey, this thing's lined up and this thing's lined up and this thing's lined up. That should be good. Hopefully it's going to be good. So, so it might be one of those self-fulfilling prophecy things too, where it just kind of gives you a little bit more excitement and energy and focus because of it. Um, but it was really interesting to see this year, just how dramatic of a, of a bump it seemed to, or, or something, whatever it was, something caused a bump that was a little bit bigger than usual. And it was, it was intriguing, I guess is the moral of the story for me. So big kind of eye opener for me at the end of October. That was interesting. And I'm definitely going to keep watching it. I've been watching it for something like 10 years now. I still haven't, you know, been, um, convinced that, that it's something kind of, some kind of game changer, but it's, it's interesting, I guess, as someone who's interested in a lot of things with deer, this is definitely one of, one of those interesting moments and, uh, an example that can continue to, keep us curious moving forward, I suppose. And, and that, yes, these two things we just talked about, that early October cold front and the late October possible moon effect were definitely my two biggest um, eye-openers, I suppose. Like, hmm, very interesting. Um, the rest of the year, things kind of trended normal as far as I'm concerned. But I know there's a couple other things that were maybe worth mentioning as far as trends or patterns um, that you want to touch on. Yeah, so I think the next one would be was the stagnant rutting weather that we had once we got into November. Um, it seemed like much of the country just had stagnant weather and we never got those warm fronts or those cold fronts. So if you were someone, for example, that loves hunting cold fronts and you were looking to burn some vacation days then and you know you were waiting on that cold front and it never came, well, that probably changed how you were hunting because that didn't factor into your decisions. Uh, and same thing if you were someone who had the time to hunt but was picking and choosing what stands you were hunting and if you were again like waiting for a cold front to come in for you to get in that bedding area stand and stay all day uh that never really came so then you were more than likely just hunting basing that off of historical data that like yeah the best rutting is between november 
ninth and 11th because a bunch of the does get bred between like the 12th and the 15th or whatever that might be um i guess what i'm getting at is that when we got to the best buck movement of the year that trumped everything is normal uh because there wasn't much of a weather factor yeah yeah i agree i think it was just a great reminder that when the rut is hitting you just got to be out there regardless of weather um i know i talked some point this year i told you the story of that one year we got these warm fronts during early november and it kept me out of the woods for a couple days and i learned that that was a big mistake because like three of my friends all killed mature bucks three days in a row um so this was a year where it's kind of the opposite in that we we just kind of had normal steady weather in november and, and nothing really changed but that didn't mean there wasn't still great hunting um so i think to your point it would have been a mistake if you were holding out for a cold front. You kind of just got to say, okay, I'm going to be out there this chunk of time during November or where, whatever time period it is for you in your area. And if we get a great front or something like that passing through, awesome. That's the day I maybe, if I see it coming up on the forecast, that might be the day I hit the very, very, very best spot or whatever. But know that anything can happen during those couple weeks of, of peak rutting type activity. And, uh, you know, you're not going to be able to take advantage of it unless you're out there, regardless of if it's 60 or 20. And with that stagnant weather, uh, like I'm, this is something that can be very localized, but I'm sure much of the country felt it was that once we got into early November, because there were like no fronts moving through or, or any kind of weather patterns, we had some really steady wind directions. And so I had some stands where like I was looking to hunt Lieutenant Dan where it only worked to hunt him on a south wind. But I remember looking at the forecast one day and this is something we had talked about on Rut Radio and it had looked like there was like eight of 10 days coming up in early November where it was just north winds. There were no south winds. I think two out of the 10 days had south wind. And so that was something that definitely changed uh, you know, my rut hunting in november and that's probably something that other people felt as well that you really had to like look at that extended forecast and maybe like take out a piece of paper and write down okay we have this wind direction this wind direction this wind direction because there are like really really limited south winds i gotta be aggressive and get in there and hunt that south wind stand once i get it because i might not have another chance yeah that's a it's a huge huge point i think it's a really good thing to mention and the fact that you know, in the postseason, think about that ahead of time and make sure that, you know, if you if you have a, like, lots of times, what I do is I'm planning on setting stands in certain regions based off the predominant winds. So I'm thinking, okay, well, most of the time here in October or November, we're going to have like a westerly wind or northwest wind. Um, so lots of times I'll just end up setting a bunch of stands for that wind direction. But then what happens if your big rut vacation comes up and you've got seven straight days to hunt and God forbid all of a sudden you have nothing but southeast winds, but all your stands are set up for northwest or west. Um, that's a situation you don't want to be in. So I would say the lesson learned for me, I had a year like this last year where we had a bunch of southeast and easterly winds when everything else was set up for west and I found myself in a pinch. What I would say is to try to make sure you account for that and have winds set up, or sorry, have some stands, if you're in a situation where you can have stands hung and prepped, make sure you do have some prep work done for those funky winds that you're not really expecting, but you want to make sure you're not hung out to dry if it does show up. Or make sure that you are comfortable enough with a mobile setup, a run-and-gun setup, so that 
it doesn't matter that you don't have stands prepped. You're just going to go and hang it that day or just sit up in the saddle that day. Um, I think one of those two things needs to be within your little toolkit to make sure that if you're in a scenario like that, you're not stuck hunting the one spot over and over or you're stuck only having one stand for this wind. Um, you just got to make sure that you can be able to strike no matter what the conditions you need to have. You need to be ready for whatever variables come your way each season, um, I think is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, and let's fast forward now from the rut to late season. And last year, I think we had like the tale of two late seasons, something we talked about how there was like a stretch of really warm days and then there was a stretch of like really nasty uh, cold days. Now, that's not something I, I think we necessarily had in like this December for much of the country, but there was still something really noticeable for 2018 and that was that there were a lot of bucks that had been shedding early uh where you were seeing like it more of not an individual basis for bucks shedding early but like a herd by herd basis where you were seeing a lot of bucks that were dropping antlers sooner than they normally would so most of the time bucks are going to be shedding like between january and march but this year, uh, something that had shown up in some rut fresh reports and then something that had, uh, you know, people had reached out to me after I shot Dan and he shed an antler was that a lot more people were seeing bucks shed early this season. And so I was wondering if that was like a product of social media, just that we're more connected and it, you know, we're more aware when people are finding sheds earlier than normal or if this was actually a trend. So I put out a call to people on Instagram. I said, hey, if this is something you've seen this year where bucks have been shedding early, slide to my DMs, and a whole bunch of people did, um, where this seemed like a, a pattern that you know people were telling me, we've been seeing a lot, of buck, a lot of bucks shed earlier than normal. So I reached out to Kip Adams from QDMA. So going into that conversation with Kip, um, a lot of the reports that I had received were out of like Ohio, New York, uh, Illinois, Arkansas, the Dakotas, but like ground zero for this seemed to be Pennsylvania, getting loads of reports of guys like shooting uh, a doe that ended up being a buck or other people uh, having experiences like I did where they shot a buck and he shed one or both antlers when they got him. Um, there were people like Bo Martonic, who we've had on the podcast before to talk about deer movement in Pennsylvania. Um, him and his dad found 10 sheds in December, Whoa. which is, yeah, that's like unheard of. And so I reached out to Kip Adams to talk to him about this and see if this is, you know, really a thing that you can see like herds that shed rather than just you know individual bucks shedding and he said yeah that's a thing and he's also based out of pennsylvania and this is something he's been hearing a bunch of in 2018 as well and so the cause for this can go all the way back to the summer and largely what you're seeing when you're seeing bucks shed early is that they are stressed or having like a nutritional deficit and so they didn't get to put on like the fat reserves that they normally would have. This is these are from the words of Kip when I talked to him a few days ago. Um, and so going into the fall, there's been metabolic studies that show that like adult deer can get half of their nutrition from stored fat. And so going all the way back to like July and August, if those deer didn't have a great food source and then 
you know, all the way into October, right before the rut. Same thing if they didn't have a great food source for a number of different reasons that would bring them into the rut and into late season with less fat than normal, which would cause them to shed, uh, you know, sooner than expected. And so Kip had pointed to how like deer densities are also higher in the country than they have been in a while. And Pennsylvania, for example, is had like really high deer densities lately because they cut back on some antlerless hunts. And so if this is something that you're seeing in your area, herds shedding early, it's probably because there were, uh, you know, there was a nutritional deficit from the summer and fall that is now led into them dropping their antlers sooner. And it can also be, be because deer densities are higher than they've been in a while. Interesting. And that might even tie back to the whole EHD effect that we talked about. So 2012, 2013, you had this significant reduction in deer population in some areas. And then you had all these deer now even more productive in the subsequent years because of that reduced competition. And now, three, four, or five years later, now you have maybe a higher deer density because you had this huge um, deficit that now flooded back in, like the vacuum all of a sudden flooded back in with um, you know, all these healthy deer that all of a sudden now maybe we're seeing the ramifications of that. Now we're getting over over dense. Too much too many deer, too few resources, um, nutritional deficit for bucks shedding early. And, you know, like I told you either last week or the week before, we I found a I I had a neighbor find a shed and give that to me over here on one of the properties I hunt. Um, I know another friend of ours, Ben Harshine, just saw his number one buck he was after a few days ago had shed. Um, yeah, I mean, it's all over. I saw someone in Illinois shot a buck, had the antlers fall off. So to your point, it is interestingly widespread this year. Um, and that's really interesting theories that Kip shared. So good. I, I asked Kip, I asked Kip if this is like, if he can recall another year that he has seen this before or gotten these kinds of reports like he has in 2018. He said the last time, and it probably wasn't ex- as extreme as this, he said it was 2012. Um, 2012 was a drought year. That was when, uh, you know, there was absolute, it was pretty obvious why there was a nutritional deficit because there was a poor quality in crops uh, and you know less natural browse because there was hardly any rain. And so that led to deer with less fat going into, um, going into the rut. And then he also talked about how bucks shedding earlier that year uh, could have been EHD survivors. And he said in some parts of Pennsylvania had some cases of EHD this year and those bucks could have been, you know, EHD survivors as well as a combination of just not being very healthy to begin with. Hmm. Very, very interesting stuff with the, with the early sheds. Um, I'm curious to hear now if more people hear this now that we're talking about it, if some more reports come in, I'd be, I'd be really interested to hear if this is more widespread, even that we're, than we're seeing right now. Um, you know, pivoting a little bit, the only other thing when it comes to late season I'd mention is that it has been at least around me and in the upper Midwest where I'm kind of tapped in the most, it has been a pretty mild late season. And I think because of that late season success rates seem to be a little bit lower than usual maybe have you felt that too spencer that we haven't had that big snowstorm cold front yet that we usually get in december that puts a bunch of big deer down yeah i i did a lot more hunting 
December than I normally would have. And that was something I noticed as well, that uh, we got a pretty good stretch of mild weather where it didn't force those deer to congregate in the obvious places like, uh, you know, a, a cut cornfield or a food plot. Yeah, it makes things a lot tougher this time of year. I mean, they're just, they're already hunted for months on end. The pressure's been high on them. They're slowing down. Yeah, when you don't get that big cold front of the snowstorm in December or January to, to get them out there in front of you, this time of year can be pretty tough. So uh, for late season, I think it has been a little bit more challenging for people. So, And your so your most important factor of the 2018 rut, you would say, was the early rutting moon, correct? Well, I would say it, it's tied between that and that early cold front as far as like interesting things that popped for me this year those two i don't know which one sure but those are my top two so i would say that it was the wet fall that we had um i, I think that just like made such a big difference in short term and long term like short term is it can affect buck movements uh like you know all of a sudden there's a creek that flooded that's now impassable and you can't get to it or maybe you're someone who haunts like minimal maintenance roads and you can't get to an area uh, you know a lot of rain can also affect sign making this is something we've talked about before how a lot of people theorize that as you get like more rain it forces those bucks to go check scrapes more often and then long-term effects that it had um, were like how it altered food sources it kept crops in more um, something that I've, I've read about but again I don't have a ton of experience with acorns is how like a lot of precipitation can sour acorns. And so this was something I looked into, but I couldn't find any hard data on, you know, what's true and what's false here. But there's some different theories around that. Like if you get a bunch of rain um, and if there's acorns on the ground that they can make them like essentially go sour and deer are no longer interested in them. So if you were somebody in mid-October, October who was focused on acorns and we got all this rain and, and these acorns are now sitting in water they're now sour and it forces those bucks to a different food source some other theories around like rain and acorns was that uh, uh, rain during that time of year and like keep it is more friendly to insects i guess and so you get some of those weevils that burrow into those acorns and that makes them rot out uh, again these aren't things that i know or could find data on just like theories that i found on the subject um and then i recall an episode back in october when we were talking to tyler jones in texas from the element podcast where he had said with all these rainstorms we had a lot of times with that came wind and that wind was knocking a lot of these acorns off the tree uh like sooner and it, it was bringing them in one big ball swoop rather than you know some acorns coming down at certain times and other coming down at other times um so anyway the the precipitation the acorns i think was was a big thing and then another long-term factor that can be, and this is going to scare people, but uh, can be EHD. So most people think of EHD, they think of a drought year that will kill a bunch of bucks. But what's more important, and this can happen on like super wet years as well. So you get these uh, like isolated water holes and these long mud lines from when you have like a, a you know, a late wet season which would be in 2018 we had this really wet fall and maybe all that water didn't disappear and so we go into 2019 and uh say we get some drought conditions or maybe we don't even need a drought um 
and all of a sudden that creates a bunch of standing water holes that is perfect for those midges, uh, you know, to really thrive. And we could have another EHD breakout in 2019 just by looking at the really wet fall that we had in 2018. Even if we don't necessarily have the drought, uh, that perfect storm is kind of, uh, you know, that should be on everyone's mind as we go into the summer. Oh, what a wonderful way to end this episode, Spencer. <laughs> thanks thanks for the silver lining for us to all think about here heading into the new year. Um, that is interesting, though. And and you're right. That is the, those those muddy banks really do seem to to lead to issues of the midges. And, and typically it's around droughts, but it's an interesting point you're bringing up here as far as how the year before sometimes might impact things, too. So something to keep an eye on. Um, for next year, no doubt about that. And if you think back to 2012, um, for a lot of areas, 2011 was a super wet year. And so like, I think about a lot of my properties that there are some areas that sometimes have water, sometimes don't, um, 2011 areas flooded and then it left all these low spots with standing water, or maybe you had a stock dam, uh, that came way out of its banks. And then you go into 2012 and that water starts to recede because it was so hot and you had these drought conditions that it leaves these long stretches of, of muddy areas and shallow water. Uh, and that was, you know, created the perfect storm for much of the country to get EHD. And that's something that we could see again in 2019. Now, shifting away from EHD, but staying on this exercise that you just shared with us, this idea of, of looking at past years and using that to help predict the future, what you just did there, that, I think, is my big takeaway from Rut Radio this year as far as how Rut Radio can be used as a tool. It's, it's, always, it's, it's helpful in the short term in that you know we get to hear people that were out hunting a few days ago and hear what they're seeing and hear what they're thinking and then use that for our future hunts in the next couple of days. Like that's how a lot of people are using these episodes of the podcast throughout the year. But I think maybe the, the, the secret sauce, and I want to do this next year, really do this next year is go back and listen to past years and look at what was predicted by these folks. What did they, what was coming to them? So let's, let's hypothetically say next year, it's October 1st. I would recommend going back and listening to Rut Radio episodes from last year and the year before maybe that were from the week before October 1st. So listen to people talking about what's coming for October 1st. So Joe Blow Hunter says, well, this front's happening or this weather condition is present or this is how the acorn crop is this year or whatever. Hear about what happened that year and then listen to the following episode to find out what the impact was. So you heard that the acorn crops were pretty rough, maybe leading into October 1st of 2016, let's say. And Joe Blow Hunter thought that was going to influence his hunting in this way, so he was going to go and hunt in that way. Listen to the next week, and you get to hear how people were hunting and what kind of success they ended up having on October 1st or October 2nd based on those conditions. I think that's a really interesting way you can test theories and see how it ended up going um, if you went back and did that each year so october 1st go back and listen to the 16 episode go back and listen to the 17 episode that can then inform you for your 2019 hunt you can see okay well this is what was going on in 16 and this is what was happening in 17 and this is how it all turned out so what does that mean for me this year 
because now I have these conditions that were just like 17. So maybe I should try doing what Joe did in 17 that worked for him. I think that is like the really unexpected way that rut radio can help folks that when we started doing the Spencer, I never thought that was going to be, I never thought there was going to be a long term value to it. Um, I thought it was going to be just valuable this week, but now I'm starting to realize like this is, this is like the best kept hunting journal in the world now because we can go back and, and, and look at journal entries from three or four years now from hunters all across the country and, and then use that to, to, to predict things in the future. I think that's that's like really cool when I start to think about that. I don't know. Have you thought about that at all? Uh, not too much. I guess a little more now that we have three seasons worth of data, but that's a good point. If you see like a, a cold front coming in early October next year, go back and listen to those episodes that we had in 2018. Or if you notice that's going to be a massive acorn crop, go back and listen to some of those episodes from 2017 because those same things are, are definitely good, going to apply to what you're going to see that fall. Yeah. We talk a lot about increasingly more the last couple of years I've been talking about it because I've been hearing from other guys that are doing this, this idea of like annual trends with buck behavior, you know, so buck a did this in 2016 and he did it again in 2017. He might do it again in 2018. Well, I think the same thing goes for not just buck behavior trends, but also how deer react to different circumstances. So how things go with a great acorn crop, how things go when a cold front hits on October 12th, how things go when you have a certain moon in late October, how things go when you get really warm days, November 4th through 7th. Um, and now we have this data set we can look back on as a reference. So, uh, so I guess I, I bring all that up to say, this is a great year of rut radio, Spencer. It was awesome. I found it really interesting. I appreciate you taking the time to, to reach out to folks and collect all their, their inputs and, and join me every week to talk about them. It's been fun. It's been interesting. And uh, I think now that we've finished three years of it, I'm just more excited than ever for next year because I think we have this, this really cool hunting journal to look back on each year. And uh, I think what I want to do in 2019 is start actively referencing things and then looking back. So next year on October 1st, I'm going to be telling you, well, hey, Spencer, I listened to the 2015 one and the 2017 one, or there wasn't 15, but you know what I mean, um, and see how that might help us in the future. So thank you, Spencer. This is cool. This is fun. And uh, I, I think and I hope and I'm pretty damn sure that we're helping people with this, and that's that's exciting. Good. I, I enjoy it. I legitimately look forward to talking to these people each week because I'm into this stuff just like I, I hope the listeners are. So, uh, you know, I'm invested in the podcast and I, I hope it's helping people as well. Yeah. So, with that, I think we should wrap this one up. So, thank you for listening. If you're still hunting, good luck. If you're done hunting, hopefully, you found this helpful as you look to review the past season and start your preparation for 2019. And with that said, until next time. Stay wired to hunt. Outdoor adventure won't wait for engine problems. Things like hard starts, rough performance, and lost fuel economy are often caused by fuel gum and varnish buildup. Seafoam 
can help your engine run better and last longer. You simply pour a can into your gas tank. Hunters and anglers rely on Seafoam to keep their engines running the way it should the entire season. So pick up a can of Seafoam today at your local auto parts store or visit SeafoamWorks.com to learn more. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.